Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a picture emerging from the January 6th committee's hearings of a mob boss and his conciliary bullying legislators into breaking the law without giving any reason apart from loyalty to the Godfather and fear of his retribution. Indeed, those brave enough to stand up to Trump's mafia tactics were summarily punished as the capo unleashed his goons on Republican officials whose families were harassed and threatened. Joining us to discuss if and when the committee's findings will be put into the context of a fascist takeover of American democracy by a ruthless thug bent on regaining presidential power so that he could have immunity from prosecution is Stephen Harper, a professor at Northwestern University and regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He's the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and he blogs at The Belly of the Beast, and we'll discuss his article at Common Dreams, Trump and his allies are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Then, with President Biden today calling for a federal and state gas tax holiday to lower prices at the pump, In order to curb inflation, we will speak with Nico Luciani, the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment, and our shared economic system. We will discuss his new report at the Roosevelt Institute, Prices, Profits, and Power, an analysis of the 2021 firm-level markups, which finds that in 2021, the net profit margins of U.S. firms jumped from an annual average of 5.5% between 1960 and 1980 to 9.5% as companies pushed up prices, citing inflationary pressures across the global economy as their justification. Then finally, we'll look into the washing of the blood on the hands of the Saudi crown prince, with his visit to the scene of the crime where MBS had Hoshogji murdered and dismembered and discussed today's meeting with Turkey's authoritarian leader. Joining us to discuss how Erdogan is blocking the entrance of Sweden and Finland into NATO and what can be done to end Turkey's drift to dictatorship is Henri Baki, Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He's the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, a profession in crisis, and he blogs at The Belly of the Beast, and he has an article at Common Dreams, Trump and his allies are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And the hearings yesterday where they made it clear how Trump operates like a mafia boss. He sends out his consulary Rudy Giuliani, to make outrageous demands without offering any evidence and basically basing say to Republican legislators, just go along with the boss, you know, go along with the godfather. You know, yep. evidence doesn't matter. And then if that doesn't work, then he sicks his goons onto them and he outs people and he publishes their home addresses and has has his mob come and harass people. Why is it, though, that so much of what we're hearing, and I'm not suggesting, I'm not being critical because the information and, and evidence is really powerful and important, and I hope the Justice Department acts on it, 
but I don't understand why people aren't contextualizing this in terms of of this is the operations of a, a mafia boss and this is basically a pathway to American fascism. Yeah, you're exactly correct. Um, a, a few a few observers have have made that uh, argument or made that analogy, which I think is exactly correct. In, in fact, I, I would add I would add one little addendum, which is I don't think he's as, he operates as smartly as a mafia boss because he makes a mistake uh, uh, periodically of actually making the call himself, um, as he did to the Georgia Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger. You know, a, a, a capo would never. You know, he he would never be be so so uh, careless as to put his own fingerprints or, if you if you will, his own voice uh, on something that could be recorded and then played back for posterity over and over again. But you're exactly right, and this has been the Trump playbook from the very beginning, um, and it's always about you know winning winning and Trump is all that matters. And if you're not on his team, you're against him, and even if you're on his team for a while. If you turn on him uh, or don't remain loyal, uh, he will turn on you. And uh, it is frightening for students of history, for students of political science uh, who study, um, you know, how organized crime work works. Um, if, if people who have studied, you know, Weimar Germany in the 30s, um, you know, this is this is uh, this is all of a, it's it's the same. It's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. And. Uh... The testimony yesterday from a couple of the election workers, Ruby Freeman in particular, and her daughter, was really heart-wrenching because their lives have been ruined. I mean, they can't go out in public. And in uh, the phone call to Traffensberger that you just mentioned, Stephen, Trump mentioned Ruby Freeman 18 times, calling her a professional vote scammer and hustler. And... Rudy Giuliani, when he was trying to shake down Republican legislatures to reverse the vote, give it to Trump, he described that Ruby's daughter passed her, or Ruby passed to his daughter a vial of cocaine. And when yeah. in the hearing yesterday, Adam Schiff asked him, What did you pass? And it turned out it was a ginger mint. I mean, these people are outrageous. They're yeah. just destroying people's lives of slander and, and libeling them. And I understand some people are suing Giuliani. But what about Trump? I mean, when's he going to be pulled over? Well, that's the question, right? That is the question. And and personally, I'm sort of I, I, I'm sort of discouraged at the what has now become the 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 debate about. Well, you know, should we indict him? Shouldn't we indict him? Uh, maybe we shouldn't even indict him because maybe we can't convict him. You know, the the ground keeps shifting, and and it and it and the narratives. The and frankly, I blame much of the media for this because they're, you know, they're 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 allowing these these narratives to shift uh, in that way. But if you or I did any of the things, you or I or any of your listeners did any of the things that Trump is accused of doing and that we now know there is evidence proving that he did. I mean, it's not even a close question. These are, this is his own voice. These are his own people. Um, the people who are testifying are Republicans. Um, you know, we could get into another question of, you know, are, are they really heroes having waited a year and a half before we're hearing this stuff? But, uh, you know, any of the rest of us would be facing, you know, uh, Disastrous civil civil criminal civil exposure from lawsuits, defamation, libel, libel, slander, as you say, um, as well as um, very 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 long prison terms. Um, and I, I just don't even think it's a close question that you indict the guy. This notion that you know we should worry because well it'll be will be even more polarized. Uh, we should worry because well what if you can't win? Um, the the Justice Department has a guideline. They have to be virtually 90% certain of being able to win a case before they indict. And they have to, uh, with, unless they meet that standard, they won't indict in the first place. And and if they meet that standard, how can you not indict the guy, the guy who, whether he's the president or someone else, who is guilty of the, the most dangerous crime against the democracy of the United States in the entire history of the country? Um I just I don't I don't get the hand wringing over that. I, to me, it's just 
it's just an it's an easy call because if you don't do it, uh, then then what are you what are you telling America? What are you telling Trump? Number one, and then what are you telling the America? You know, we're already at a place where you know Congress issues subpoena and subpoenas and and people just feel free to just ignore them. Um, you know, fight them in courts until until they disappear or people forget or um, it's it's to me, it's like I say, to me, it's not even a close question. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He's the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and he blogs at Belly of the Beast. And he has an article at Common Dreams. Trump and his allies are a clear and present danger to American democracy. So obviously they're building a case, the select committee, and they walk you through. I mean, they, the presentations are very, are very skillful. But by spending so much time, you know, making it clear, for example, that all of Trump's top aides told him he'd lost the elections, and he even mentioned it to several people that he acknowledged that he lost the elections. Now, I guess that's a, that's an important. Those are important things to put on the record. But what's really going on here is that none of that matters. Trump doesn't care about facts and truth. He is on his own trajectory, which is he's so psychologically wounded by his father, who was a total Nazi, and he said, you, you know, you've got to be a killer, son. You can't ever be a loser. So he can't be a loser. And also, he couldn't give up the presidency because it would expose him to exactly what's happening now, the fact that he's no longer protected by the Office of Legal Counsel, the Justice Department's finding that you can't indict a sitting president. So that's what's going on, isn't it, Stephen? Correct. Absolutely correct. Um, I, I think that the reason, one reason, that the committee is spending as much time as it is um, or has uh, uh, you know, showing the evidence that look, Trump knew, all of his people knew, uh, his top advisors were telling him, you know, it's a loser, is to help buttress the evidence of 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 intent um, in terms of the criminal requirements. Um, now, the, the the fact of the matter is that for some of this, some of the potential crimes that he faces, it it really is, as you say, it really is extraneous. You know, I I, I can I can I can say, gee whiz, you know, I really had this firm belief um, that I won the the Indianapolis 500 or that I won the Olympic gold medal. And then based on that, I, I tell you, you know, what I want you to do is, is you guys need to go in and, and go, go break into the house of the guy who, who has the Olympic medal that should be mine um, and, and give it to me. Because as we all know, I'm the real, I'm the, I'm the rightful owner of that medal. Uh, well, that's, you know, the notion that I believe that I won the Olympics is no defense to the crime that I've now committed. Um, and, and the same is true for Trump. Um, but I do think it does help help. I think it helps the public to the extent that there are any any relevant members of the public at this point left to persuade, although the, some of the polls indicate that it is moving the needle a little bit with, in terms of some Republicans. Six out of 10, six out of 10 Americans now want now believe that he should face criminal charges. So I think there is there, there's help there. But and I think it's I think it is useful to show that you know this there this was always a colossal fraud and it was a colossal fraud from the very beginning and the most you know the Trump's most significant closest advisors were telling him that it's a colossal fraud um you know, and so you know even uh, Rudy Giuliani according to the testimony of of the speaker of the House, of the, the Arizona House of Representatives said you know we have theories we just don't have any facts um and so it's um it, it 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 all needs to it all really needs to come to a to a head and it needs to come to a head that the the evidence clearly would take it like i say if it were you or my you or me facing uh, uh, these kinds of these kinds of problems so the question yesterday of course came from um, adam schiff and he recently in an interview said that he's more worried about what's happening now that he said we're in much greater danger now to our democracy than we were on January the 6th because of uh, what Trump and the Republicans have done. In other words, they've sort of learned from their mistakes and they're going to rig the local 
you know, they're going after Secretary of State's offices, after canvassing boards. They're going to basically be in a position where the few decent Republicans like Raffensberg and others who stood up to Trump, who were vilified, and, and he sicked the goons onto him and gave out their home addresses, those people are gone. And stop the steel people are being put in their place. So That's right. Isn't that what Judge Ludic was warning about in, in his testimony? I think so. And, and I've... I was I wrote an, enti- an entire series on this for Common Dreams. You can go state by state and look at where Trump is endorsing uh, people who are either running strongly or winning um, for critical critical offices. There's uh, Christine Camaro in Karamo, um, I'm sorry, in uh, in Michigan. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, there's the guy in Nevada, Jim Marchant. Um, you know, these people were all they're they're all uh, they all got together at a QAnon conference, uh, you know, to talk about, you know, how how are we going to take back what they call take back the country? Um, and I noticed there was a, a report recently, I think it was in The Washington Post. that said of of the there are 100 people who are election deniers, deniers um, who have already won their primaries. Uh, their Republican primaries. Um, and there's some really important ones coming, uh, some important general elections coming, you know, in Pennsylvania, swing state. Uh, Mastriano is is the guy, if he wins and becomes governor, he'll, he'll appoint the secretary of state. It's not an elected office there. But that sort of thing is happening all over, all over the country. And, and I believe Schiff is exactly correct. Um, I have shared his concern for for months uh, or even longer and, and written about it, that that is exactly what's going on. And it's the, it's the, dis, the dismantling of democracy from, from the inside. If, if democracy dies in the United States, um, it will have been an, ins, an inside job. Um, and that's exactly what's happening. Well, given what you just said, and I've been saying it for some time, Stephen, what the hell are people going to do about this? You know, what's the opposite? The, <laughs> yeah. the governing party, which is the Democrats, albeit you know they got a pretty tenuous hold on the Senate, but they still are the in control of the House and Senate and the White House. What are they doing? What are the people doing? Because you're going to miss it when it's gone. I guarantee you. you don't you know American people will not like living in a totalitarian state, even though. Trump and his MAGA people think it's all about freedom. Well, it's not. At the right. end of the day, we're going to be enslaved by a thug. This sick man is going to be in, you know, back in power. Uh, and his buddy Putin and all these other crooks around the world will be working with him. And by the way, he is actually still Putin's agent because Putin's main goal is to weaken America from within. And that's exactly what Trump is doing by dividing and turning Americans against each other. And unfortunately, we're obliging in our polarization. And if you get convinced 80% of Republicans that you won an election that you clearly lost, uh, that makes the president illegitimate and divides the country further. So Putin's laughing all the way to the bank. Yep. I I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Uh, And the question is, what do you do about it? Well, that's that's the question, right? Um, and the the answer is tough because it's very hard to get people to care about uh, something that they take that they you so take for granted, like American democracy. When they go to the they go to fill up their car with gas and it's six or seven dollars a gallon, um, or their you know their groceries are high inflate and, and these are they're real problems. I understand that. But compared to the loss of democracy, those are problems that are going to they're going to resolve themselves. You know, we're not going to be living in high inflation forever. We're not going to be living in in, uh, you know, that sort of situation uh, forever. But as you exactly I think you hit it exactly on the head. Uh, democracy, you're going to miss it when you gone when it's gone. And it's going to be very, very hard. It'll take I think it'll take generations to get it back if we lose it. How do you keep from losing it? You just got to figure out a way to to get people, the people who care enough about it to do something about it, uh, to get out there, to organize people, to vote, uh, however hard the Republicans want to make it to vote, figure out a way to vote. 
if you're a, if you're an independent or if you're a if you're one of the growing numbers of people who were once regarded themselves as Republicans and and are now um, you know concerned about the loss of democracy, uh, well, vote for a Democrat for the first time in your life. You know, the amazing thing to me is 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 not only that a lot of these Republicans uh, continue to to support Trump. You know, R- Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona uh, House, who was under pressure from Trump and Giuliani. Um, he voted for the guy. So did Raffensperger. I mean, all these Republicans who are testifying now to the the, the tactics that Trump tried, pressure tactics that Trump uh, tried to put on on them, they all voted for him. And and many of them, and I guess you know, culprit number one, Mitch McConnell, who condemned him uh, in the Senate at the at the time of the impeachment vote, uh, although d- declined to vote to convict him. Um, has now said quite openly, of course, if Trump's the Republican candidate, of course I'll vote for him. Uh, I mean, how do you deal with that kind of cognitive, cognitive dissonance? I have no idea. But I, I think all you can do is you have to assume that it's the it's a highly visible, highly mobilized, highly motivated minority that's trying to take democracy away from a relatively apathetic, lethargic majority. And unfortunately, you and I have both seen throughout history that that has happened time and time again. And if we're lethargic this time, it will be a, it will be with, at great cost to our to ourselves and, and to our future generations. Well, Stephen Harper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University, a regular contributor to The American Lawyer, and the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and he blogs at The Belly of the Beast, and he has an article of Common Dreams. Trump and his allies are a clear and present danger to American democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into President Biden's call for a federal and state gas tax holiday to low prices at the pump in order to curb inflation, and a new report that calls for an excess profit tax on corporations. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nico Luciani, who is the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment, and our shared economic system. And he has a new report at the Roosevelt Institute, Prices, Profits, and Power and analysis of the 2021 firm-level markups. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nico Luciani. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And your paper, which was published on Tuesday, shows how U.S. corporate price markups and profits have surged to their highest levels since the 1950s, just last year. And, of course, you make an argument that for an excess uh, profits tax as a way to rein in inflation. Today, President Biden made an announcement in terms of trying to rein in inflation, oil prices being a major driver of inflation. Uh, He called for a 90-day tax holiday with federal gas tax and also urged states to cut their gas tax as well. But it's not exactly being greeted, even with the Democratic majority in the House and certainly in the Senate. uh, It's pretty dead on arrival. So what did you make of the, today's announcement in terms of dealing with inflation? Well, it, you know, um, we were in this paper really trying to look at the longstanding trends of uh, market power in our economy and how firms uh, across industries, including the oil and gas sector, uh, but also in retail, in pharmaceuticals and many different sectors, have gained more and more market share and been able to increasingly set the prices on the market rather than the market setting prices on companies. And so this big question beyond just the gas price question, really across the economy, the question is, what are the sources of inflation? Why is this happening? 
You know, and there are generally three stories here people might be familiar with. The first is it's all demand. People have too much money. <laughs> and uh, as a result, we need to tighten interest rates, uh, put people out of work and really bring down demand in the economy that will bring down prices. The second story is that there just isn't enough stuff produced uh, at a sufficient level. This is a supply story. Um, and some blame that on COVID restrictions and lockdowns on supply chain issues. But essentially, um, you know, the supply is so limited, we need to um, produce more potentially onshore uh, and, uh, and, and rev up uh, su supply um, to be able to bring the prices down. And then there's a third story that people have been uh, asking and, and, and pointing out, which is that actually um, firms themselves, companies, have certain amount of discretion and pricing power that they can set up prices where they want, especially during a time when the supply and demand dynamics are all out of whack. And so what we tried to do is just take a very data-driven approach. We looked at the income statements and cash flow statements of almost 4,000 companies uh, since 1955, all the way uh, up until 2021. And as you mentioned, we saw in 2021 just an explosion of both profits, uh, either after tax or uh, before tax, and also of markups, that companies' costs somewhat uh, stabilized in 2021, but the sales, their revenue, um, jumped uh, much more um, uh, during that year. And that, to us, really kind of um, bore down the fact that the companies have a certain amount of discretion here, and it may be, um, there may be serious grounds for considering taking efforts to sort of decrease those margins and in so doing decrease uh, levels of inflation we're seeing today. So, Nico, your report shows that the net profit margins of U.S. firms jumped from an annual average of 5.5% between 1960 and 1980 to 9.5% in 2021. And clearly, companies have been pushing up their prices and, and they've also been citing... Uh, you know the global economy and inflation as a justification. So this is that that's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you if you cite inflation for wanting to raise your prices, in, in doing so, you cause inflation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, I should point out that there is something to both the demand and supply story that we find in the data. You know, if you look at on the demand side, uh, all firms of all sizes have increased their markups. Uh, in 2021. And that just tells us that there's just, there is, people are buying more stuff than they may have in 2021 than they did in 2020. That's just, that's a portion, a, a portion of the cause of uh, inflation. And the supply story is very real. If you look between industries, some industries have much bigger markups than others. You, we mentioned oil and gas before and mining, they have quite a big markup in, in 2021. Real estate, you know, uh, what we would imagine is kind of housing, food, and fuel. Those have had particular markups in 2021, and that suggests that there's something out of whack in how we produce things in the economy. But I think what we tried to give is a, a solid data-driven um, economics uh, paper to kind of try and give some evidence to the fact that companies indeed do matter, and decisions in the C-suites around companies' pricing uh, strategies are significant and they affect not just the individual consumers of that uh, particular company, but on net, you know, on aggregate, I should say, uh, it affects the, the whole economy and is, is part of the reason why we have inflation. And therefore, if, the, if those markups can be reduced, the excess profits tax is one idea. There's antitrust enforcement, various different ways to constrain corporate power, both in the short term and the medium term, we can really drive down prices and, uh, and improve innovation in our economy. And you could also argue that increasing competition and reducing market power through antitrust action would bring down inflation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of a no-brainer for particular sectors and particular companies. But we're, we're trying to make the argument also on the aggregate um, that both enforcing the law as it is, but also being assertive that they, the, these laws will be enforced in the future will drive a kind of behavioral change in these companies uh, uh, that can, um, uh, in, in the immediate term, um, bring down their prices. Because these are pretty you know, quick uh, turnarounds. 
companies' pricing strategies can change essentially from one day to the next, depending on the the company. And so we, we really do think antitrust, but also so the the bully pulpit. I think uh, Biden has done a little bit of this, but putting companies on guard, uh, making sure that they know that it's bad business to raise raise prices. And what we want to see is, you know, if indeed um, there is a com- uh, increasingly competitive market, uh, competitive market, excuse me, then companies' revenues should be more or less closer to where their costs are, where their real costs are, right? There shouldn't be a huge gap like we've seen in this paper. Well, Biden did use the bully pulpit today to announce this 90-day federal gas tax holiday and encourage states also to drop their gas tax, which is higher than federal taxes. As I mentioned, it's not even being greeted with much enthusiasm in the House, which is the Democrats' control, and in the Senate, of course, Republicans are all against it, and uh, Manchin is probably likely to join them. So maybe it's just a ploy on Biden's part to shift the focus away from him being blamed for inflation uh, from gas prices as, and put it in the lap of the of the Congress. But still, obviously, the war in, in Ukraine is is a huge factor, and certainly in the increase in gasoline uh, prices. But the Federal Reserve Chairman was asked that question about is is the war in Ukraine driving the inflation in this country? And he said, well, yeah, but uh, it was basically uh, happening before the war. So it's not the the only or primary cause. Mm. So when you argue in your new report, because that changes to labor and worker compensation are not driving factors in recent markups. So that's been... A chorus coming from corporate America, isn't it? And from conservative economists saying that workers are just, you know, this is too friendly an economy for workers. And now, of course, as uh, interest rates rise, and now you've got Larry Summers calling for more unemployment to bring down inflation. So is that what's happening here? You're trying to say that we should be looking at excess profits on the corporate side. Uh, but a lot of the discussion now is is uh, suggesting that workers are getting it too, having it too good, and we they have to um, suffer some pain. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think people are on the wrong foot when they point to the wage price spiral. Um, uh, economists of, of different stripes, uh, we found in our data very clearly that there hasn't been a jump uh, in these um, indicators. Uh, whether you look at cost of goods sold, uh, which is uh, one particular place where uh, labor costs show up, or you look at uh, sales general administrative costs, which is another place that uh, labor costs uh, uh, show up. Both of them have stabilized uh, essentially since 2018. There's been really no jump, significant jump in 2021. Um, and as a result, the idea that people making a little bit more money in this economy is driving Inflation to us is is just uh, that there's no evidence that we found at all for that. Instead, there's an evidence of something you know you could call a profit price spiral, uh, wherein companies that are seeing their ability to price high, they have pricing power in other words, uh, are able to um, either reap profits um, or they're expected to reap profits. Um, their expected earnings are, are going up into the future which signals to the markets uh, that they're worth uh, investing in more and their stock price goes up. Whereas those companies that um, are unable or unwilling um, to increase their prices uh, have sort of stable or decreased earnings expectations, which signals to the financial markets that their stock price should go down and they're essentially uh, punished uh, for not increasing their prices. And that, to us, is sort of the feedback loop that we're seeing. There's much of the pressures, if you want to call them that, that the C-suite is facing are not from below, from workers. The pressures are from below, above, from their shareholders and, and, and institutional investors to continue the price spiral, if, if that makes sense. It does, and they're the beneficiaries, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, we've seen uh, through great work from one of our fellows, Lenore Palladino, that somewhere... Uh, around 95 to 100% of um, after-tax earnings uh, of the S&P 500 um, go uh, are distributed out to shareholders as opposed to reinvested in the in the companies. So these profits, as they're going up in 2021, it's safe to say that somewhere between 80 
percent and 100 percent in aggregate um, have gone to shareholders in 2021, which is not a pretty sight if you're interested in, in fighting inequality and, and, and a shared, building a shared economy. Well, Nico Luciani, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Nico Luciani, who's the director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, where he leads the program's efforts to dissect and dismantle the ways in which extractive corporate behavior jeopardizes workers, consumers, our natural environment, and our shared economic system. And he has a new report at the Roosevelt Institute, Prices, Profits, and Power, an analysis of the 2021 firm-level markups. We enter a brief station break back looking into the washing of the blood on the hands of the Saudi crown prince with his visit to Turkey, the scene of the crime where MBS had Hoshoji murdered and dismembered. Get from out the road when he get dough was horrible. Time is money, spend way, save, invest a fest. The ten case of cave a chicken chest S. Yes, y'all a double get your trickles. The best ball is pitching and rub to get a nickels. But tut tut, he about to change the price again and go up each time he blow up like hydrogen. Villain here, have him shrilling in fear. And won't stop top bill until he a gazillionaire. Villain, his agenda is clear. Ending this year with dividends to spear here. A new meaning to sales through the roof. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Henri Baki, Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at the Middle East for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence and has authored, co-authored, and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question with Graham Fuller, Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East, and most recently, European Response to Globalization, Resistance, Adaptation, and Alternatives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Henri Baki. Thank you. So uh, what do you make of the visit to uh, Ankara today of the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman? Obviously, there was a after the murder of uh, Joji in the Saudi consulate, there was a rift, a fairly public rift between Erdogan and MBS. But uh, he visited Erdogan visited Jeddah, I think, in uh, April, I think it was, and now MBS is visiting Erdogan in Ankara. So, what's the purpose of this trip apart from clearly burying the hatchet? Well, it's a bit like returning to the scene of the crime, isn't it? Um, the look, I, the purpose I think is different for the two parties. One for Erdogan, it's a way of trying to convince the Saudis to maybe invest in Turkey. It's Turkish uh, foreign res- exchange reserves are dangerously low, and they're getting lower and lower by the day. And he, he desperately needs cash to bolster the the treasury and and, and his um, uh, foreign exchange reserves. So that's what really Erdogan is about. Is interested in. For the Saudis, I, I am not necessarily sure because there's not that much to gain. Um, let's face it, Saudi Turkish relations have been. Not good for for many many years, especially after uh, the journalist Adnan Khashoggi's murder in the Saudi embassy on the orders of the Saudi leadership. And but beyond that, Erdogan is not well received in almost all of the Middle East, except probably um, Qatar. But so they, nobody trusts Erdogan. So. The question is, why is MBS traveling there now? It may be because it's a way of kind of showing Erdogan that he's the more powerful person. Because from where Erdogan used to attack the Saudis and MBS over the murder of Khashoggi, in a way he he had a point, you know, he had to drop that discourse. He had to drop that and he eventually even agreed that the prosecution of the perpetrators should be handled by the Saudis and not by the by Turkish justice. And so there's a way in which essentially MBS is coming to Turkey to rub uh, Erdogan's nose in, in on, on the concrete, if you want. I mean, just to, it's his way of showing 
his his uh, superiority his uh, over Erdogan and so but I don't know what other reasons there may be to to this visit um, I'm not a Saudi expert so I can't really tell you it may also be a way of trying to signal the Iranians that even with the Turks the Saudis are ready to make a deal to contain and to encircle Iran, because Turkey is an important country when it comes to Iran, uh, in terms of both trade and um, access. Uh, Turkey is a transit point for for Iran uh, in and out. So it may be that MBS is trying to show that they can squeeze the Iranians further. And in terms of uh, what's happening with Erdogan's continual refusal to allow Sweden and Finland to enter NATO. There's a meeting coming up in NATO, isn't there? I think, is it is this, this week or next week? At the end of the month in Madrid, there's a NATO summit. Right. Where and we're... so the Turkish spokesperson for Erdogan has indicated that Turkey may hold up entry for up to a year. Yes, and I think Erdogan is going to play that game and I think he he uses the this little crisis in with the international community, whether it's NATO, or the Greeks, or Syria, or uh, you name it, as a means of changing the conversation at home, uh, because the Turkish economy is in the doldrums. Inflation is very very high, much higher than probably what the official figures indicate. Uh, the Turkish lira has lost enormous amount of value against uh, international currencies, the dollar and the euro, and and prices are going up. I mean, bread and um, petroleum prices, like everywhere else in the world. I mean, it's a general crisis. But he he is worried because he has to have elections within a year, and he's worried that the economic conditions will determine the outcome of the election and he wants to avoid that and basically he uses the foreign policy as a means of putting pressure on the opposition and trying to force the opposition to side with him and b to have his newspapers television stations you name it kind of broadcast these crises as a way of not talking about um, what's going on at home in terms of uh, the prices, etc., but also increasing repression um, on the Kurds. I mean, the, the repression in Turkey has really, really deepened and increased in recent in re- recent months to the extent that you don't know when you will be prosecuted. Anybody can be prosecuted at any time. You know, if you send this sent this tweet seven years ago. They may decide that that tweet was insulting to the president or to the state or makes something up and then send you to prison. I mean, the number two person in the main opposition party's Istanbul office was just convicted of a tweet she sent seven years ago. And uh, and since, he, since Erdogan controls the justice system and everything else in Turkey, they convicted her, and when she gets convicted, she has to abandon her political post. She can't be a, an official in a, in a political party if she's a convicted person. But even more, even worse than that, I will tell you one example. Uh, this young university graduate who, well, she graduated a few years ago, she was, when she was an undergraduate, she worked on a project for, I think, the UN and and maybe another EU-funded project on internal migration in Turkey. She and everybody who worked on that project were picked up the other day and jailed. Now, understand, when you get jailed, you have to have an indictment, right? There is no indictment. Her lawyers say the earliest there will be an indictment is eight months from now. In the meantime, they will all remain in prison. I mean, this is what they did to Kavala, Osman Kavala, the um, the most important probably political prisoner in Turkey, with together with the, the the leader of the main Kurdish opposition party. So they they are you. I mean, every day you see more and more arrests. And when we talk about arrests, it's not that somebody just 
gets arrested and then released on their own cognizance. No, they, they're sent, especially if they're Kurds, they, they are remanded in custody for as long as they wish. And so that part of, you know, Erdogan's governance is actually really, really worrisome. But to come to Sweden and Norway. Sweden uh, and Finland. Uh. Sorry, sorry, Sweden and Finland. The Turks uh, and Erdogan have made a big issue of that. But the, the, the irony, of course, is that Erdogan did promise the Finnish, I think, prime minister months ago that he would not stand in the way of Sweden and Finland's participation or entry into, into NATO. So why did he do this? There's a, there's a way in which Erdogan, like many other populist authoritarian leaders, whether it's Putin or Trump or you name the person, they tend to make decisions sometimes on their own without consulting, or even if they consult, they don't listen to what the others have to say because they are convinced that they're always right. And they see themselves as greater than, than life, if you want. And Erdogan here is trying to show that he's really a powerful world leader and by being an obstructionist. This is not new. And in the past, of course, when Erdogan has been either an obstructionist or, or has been acting in a, shall we say, belligerent way, the rest of the world gave in. But I think things have changed in that nobody trusts Erdogan anymore and people are more willing to stand up. So he wants the Swedes in particular to get rid of uh, Kurdish organizations uh, who have organized themselves in, in Sweden. Even though Sweden is the first country that recognized the PKK as a terrorist organization, the PKK being the Kurdish Workers uh, Party that um, is now is considered also a terrorist organization by the United States and others. But that organization still exists, even not necessarily uh, great, with great military strength. It has bases in northern Iraq, but it's not really present in Turkey anymore. But for Erdogan, the Kurds are a threat, and he's in particularly worried about Syrian Kurds. And he's been bombing Syrian Kurdish positions incessantly. And the Syrian Kurds are the um, the most important component of the anti-ISIS or Daesh coalition led by the United States. The United States and the Syrian Kurds are in an alliance. But um, on the uh, Trump... Trump allowed the Turks to invade northern Syria and and take territory away from the Syrian Kurds. But Biden doesn't want that to happen and has put his foot down. But that doesn't stop the Turks from attacking. But the important thing here is that there is a strong, there's a lot of support in Sweden for the Syrian Kurds. And there's one Kurdish origin, but she's from Iran, uh, member of parliament in Sweden, who essentially is the is the the single vote that enabled the current Swedish coalition to take power. And so, at one point, they wanted her out. They made they want all kinds of people to be extradited to 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 Turkey. And you have to understand that the Turkish, when the Turks demand somebody to be extradited, they don't necessarily have any proof. I mean, they just make things up. So it's very difficult for judges anywhere around the world to adhere to Turkish requests. But so, so if you if you can't get people through, shall we say, the the regular judicial channels, then you blackmail, and that's what Erdogan likes to do. And he will he will not give in uh, at the Madrid summit. I don't think he will give in to Madrid summit, but I don't think that will necessarily stop uh, Sweden and Finland from joining the European uh, so the NATO alliance. They will, with time, uh, probably start making all the necessary adjustments to to become a NATO member, even though the process will not be formally in starting because of the Turkish veto. And Turkey is, you know, is isolated in um, in NATO. Everybody else wants these countries to join. 
He is the only one. And we've seen also with other leaders like him, like take, for example, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who at one point opposed sanctions on, on, on Russia because of the Ukraine invasion. And eventually he had to relent because it's not fun to be the only person or the only country in a, in a powerful organization with this EU or NATO. So at some point he's going to find a way to, to give in, but it may take a while. But what can be done about Erdogan, though? I mean, if he's jailing his opposition, he's already uh, jailed an, an awful number of, uh, of journalists, and I don't, what, don't know what state the opposition is in the upcoming elections, but obviously they have massive disadvantages because they don't control the press like Erdogan does. And if the NATO countries are fed up with him, and I'm sure the European countries are fed up with him, what can be done? I mean, is there an opposition that can be mobilized? Well, because of the elections, there's an opposition that has uh, gathered, six parties have gotten together. I mean, of those six parties, two are consequential. They have excluded the Kurds, the Kurdish party, unfortunately, this um, opposition coalition. And, um, but at the moment, it looks like Erdogan is going to have the fight of his life uh, because people are fed up with the economic conditions. And, you know, he's been around for 20 years. It's time for a change. The opposition, unfortunately, is really the gang that can't shoot straight. Um, it's not clear to me that they will come up with a, uh, should we say, popular candidate who can um, fight it out with Erdogan. Of course, Erdogan has always the means of cheating, and, he, and I'm sure he'll do that because he cannot afford to lose. I mean, if he loses this whole edifice, especially family and all the companies that are uh, beholden to him, would all collapse, including the press and, and, and the judiciary, which is now completely controlled by his people. So it's going to be a tough fight for the opposition. Look, there's... There's very little we can do from the outside. The only thing that um, can be done is is essentially to come up with a political strategy that combines, if you want, um, both pressure and, and rewards. But I don't think that we can change Erdogan anytime soon as long as he's running for re-election in, in within for a year from now he will not change his policy so we need to think about post uh, election uh erdogan and then we'll have much more influence but then for that you have to have a coherent strategy and the biden administration to its credit has taken a kind of a stand-off approach to to Erdogan. Trump used to, Trump and Erdogan used to talk to each other very often. In in part because of that, Biden has avoided talking to Erdogan much, and that doesn't please the uh, doesn't please Erdogan, especially because you know the Greek Prime Minister was in town a few weeks ago. He got a standing ovation at the joint uh, session of Congress. He got uh, feted everywhere in, in Washington and the White House. So Erdogan feels that he's being uh, kind of shunned. And that's good. I mean, but it's a it's a solid straight line strategy. It's, it, if you won't call it a policy of containment, but that's not enough because it clearly is not enough in the sense that uh, it doesn't stop him from persecuting people. It doesn't stop him from intervening in Syria and undermining the anti-ISIS coalition. And the U.S. usually indulged him in the past. Things changed when Erdogan decided to buy the Russian S-400 missile system, despite very strong warnings from the, from the Americans saying, if you buy it, you will lose your access to the fifth-generation aircraft, the F-35, and the Turks were part of the production process, etc. And Erdogan thought he could get away with it, and that's when the policy started to change. Even, even Trump could not stop sanctions on Turkey associated with the S-400 purchase. So 
that indulgence period has has ended mostly. I mean, there's still obviously indulgence, but Biden has put, if you want, uh, the relationship on hold. I mean, there's not there's no great initiatives. There's routine conversations with the Turks. There's no effusive uh, patting on the uh, on on the back of patting the back on the back of Erdogan. So that stuff is gone. But clearly, it's not enough because if you need change, you need uh, Erdogan to, you know, stop persecution at home, stop threats to and the Aegean. He's threatening the Greeks. He's threatening in Cyprus. And the thing about Erdogan, paradoxically, is that Erdogan is probably the weakest he has ever been. Economically, he, as I said, he's in he's in right. home. And internationally, he is isolated. There's not a country in the Middle East that likes him. Maybe Qatar is the exception, right? right. So he, he's, he doesn't have much support out there. Well, Henri, we unfortunately run out of time, but I thank right. you so much. I thank appreciate you. it. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Henri Barker, who's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at the Middle East Studies, for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and authored, co-authored, and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question, Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine
time one night 